Hier komen we in vreemd. My name is Ros Ward and you're listening to Red Flag Radio, the podcast of Red Flag Newspaper here in Australia. Um, I would like to acknowledge that we record this podcast on Indigenous land, Indigenous land that was stolen, that was never ceded, that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. On our show, we discuss and analyse politics, history, theory, activism from an unapologetically radical revolutionary socialist perspective in each episode I'm joined by people involved in campaigns and debates on the ground and historians who were part of the struggles. And I wanted to make a plug today, if you're enjoying the show so far, this is episode seven, um, to help us spread the word. It makes a big difference if you rate and review the show on iTunes. Um, And I've been looking at our chart position in the last couple of weeks. And um, under the category Australia and politics, the current number one is consistently Pine time with uh, ex-liberal minister Christopher Pine, who's now retired and spending a lot of time recording his podcast. So um, the voices that you can hear who instantly want to say something about Christopher Pine, because they have had some personal connections with the fellow, are um, Daniel Taylor, who's on the editorial team of Red Flag Newspaper. Hello. Hello, Ross. And Nat Ackerman, who's a student activist at RMIT. Hello. And we've got Nat in the studio to um, talk about this issue in particular because Nat is just about to head off to the NUS National Union of Students Annual Conference, which takes place usually in December every year. And we wanted to catch you before you went because the issue I thought would be interesting um, to talk about and kind of a follow-up from a previous show is how um, students and young people in particular have been seemingly kind of the driving force of the current wave of struggles. And I think... It's been hard to miss that point, really, if you look at the coverage, if you're watching YouTube obsessively, like I'm sure we all are, and that you can see it's pretty young people and in particular students, not just university students, but um, high school students as well in their uniforms and all of that Chilean high school penguins is pretty amazing. Um, So uh, let's start just so people know who you are, Nat. Uh, Tell us a bit about your political life and what you've been involved in. Uh, Well, yeah, as you mentioned, um I've got personal connections with Christopher Pine, which is that my political life sort of began with a campaign uh, trying to end his political life uh, <laughs> in 2014 when he was the education minister against um, or alongside Tony Abbott, who was part of a liberal um, government that was launching attack on higher education. And so we'd organised Social Alternative um, alongside the National Union of Students, a big protest campaign all throughout that year um, against uh, those attacks and that was sort of my first year at university and it's how I got involved both in like being an activist but also yeah being a socialist. I think one day we did actually bump into Christopher Pine because I remember there's a I think there's a photo of Sarah Garnham who's a previous guest on the show I'm um, holding up a newspaper right very near Christopher mm. Pine there's a photo of that happening yeah. Oh yeah we were very much the bane of the Liberal Party's existence that yeah. entire year. I believe we chased him off Monash University campus and away from the possibly away from the synchrotron experimental physics facility. Oh, so Daniel, that's a good introduction to your uh, your personality, maybe. But no, uh, okay. Well, let's go to the international stuff. So, um, Chile is probably the most uh, important example that we've been talking about on the show. I mean, obviously they're all important, but 
also the most clearly kind of sparked by the high school students and the university students protesting about the public transport fees um, and the kind of campaigns for free education that have been really a hallmark of the Chilean student movement for a long time now. Um, even last year, 100,000 students. Earlier this year, there were student protests before this kind of spark um, took off more recently. Nat, do you want to tell us a bit more about the importance of students in, in Chile? Yeah, well, I suppose the most recent stuff it just really is um, a clear example of what the role they've played, which is that the very first protests against the fee, the transport fee hikes, they were sparked by high schoolers that just en masse decided to jump um, the barriers into the train stations and occupy the train stations. And I was watching some of the interviews that were done with like general members of the public in the first couple of days. And the sort of attitude that they were talking about was like, oh, well, we um, like, I'm so glad that they're doing it. Like I'm a full-time worker. I can't like kind of take this time out of my life, uh, but I'm so glad I'm totally support them. And then, you know, a couple of weeks later, actually a whole lot of kind of workers and other layers of society were coming out and broadening out the struggle as well. And the high schoolers and the university students have always sort of been the um, force protesting against the Chilean government in 2010 to 2014 under Pinera's first sort of rule. They had a huge campaign. And even at the beginning of this year, they were the first people to protest against the new government. And as George was talking about in his interview, uh, George DeCara, who we had on the show, I mean, the level of politics for young people in, in Chile is just quite phenomenal. And, you know, there's a whole lot of historical reasons for that. But certainly in, in this round of, um, of struggles, like you have these young people who are being interviewed who are like 12 years old telling you kind of the history of Chilean politics and their views on everything and debating people in schools. And so that kind of idea that as a student you're meant to be political is something I think that we might have lost a bit of in Australia, but it certainly exists in a whole lot of un other countries around the world. Yeah, and universities are usually the place where you're supposed to be taught about the world and given the critical ideas to analyse society. And they're very much a battleground because they teach lots of ideas throughout history, but also have an interest in wanting to teach workers or um, the next kind of layer of workers to just accept kind of capitalism, accept neoliberal sort of ideas. So there's a real space for that sort of stuff to open up, um, which I think you see in Chile where like they've got such a political context and a political struggle for a very long time now there. It's no surprise that places like schools and universities are where it's the conversations are happening. Yeah, and it's interesting to compare it, Chile to a country like Hong Kong, where students have also clearly played a really central role in the movement. But from all the accounts that I've read, much less uh, consciously connected to historical political traditions. Mm -hmm. You know, these Chilean, see these kids in Chile, and they, they're doing these raps about how their movement relates to the whole last 30 or 40 years of the Chilean left. Whereas in Hong Kong, it's much more starting from scratch. But you still have the students playing this heroic role with their physical courage, the creativity of tactics with how they can pr provide this incredible visual demonstration of how people can defy state authorities. So even in countries where the students are less political, they still have the capacity to really lead in terms of initiating fights uh, against oppression and inspiring other layers in society to, to rise up as well. Yeah, and I think the sort of space that you have on university campuses, even though they're more and more kind of full chock full of students going through the system like there's still a sense that students have some right over that space like a campus can be the site of resistance in a way that workplaces are kind of harder to do because there's much more of a mixed 
um, consciousness usually and all of that. So in Hong Kong, definitely the campuses have really been the site where students have said, actually, no, this is our space and we will defend it and we won't and we shouldn't have riot police coming on and tear gassing us all and whatever. And that people more broadly really kind of support that idea. Yeah. Um, and kind of always the universities have been a place that it's supposed to be this kind of safe haven from police repression and the cops aren't supposed to go on. It's been a real battle that's been fought and won throughout like a, you know, harboring draft resistors and draft dodgers in the Vietnam War in Australia, um, generally organising that sort of stuff. And in Hong Kong, it's kind of been the similar thing. And that's why part of the occupation of the universities was about having a place that wasn't kind of on the streets, the pitch battle and stuff, and why there was such outrage about the the police incursion um, into the mm. universities trying to smash it out. But, yeah, the thing that you mentioned is super important, which is that it wasn't like the students held it alone. They instead had um, actually mass support of people who uh, wanted to come out and support holding the occupation. Um, there's a story of this uh, cook who was like, oh, I don't support the, he was being being interviewed and he was like, oh, I don't support the tactics or I'm not, it's not kind of my speed to like go out and throw Molotov cocktails and stuff. But I saw footage of the students occupying the university and they were just eating rice and meat. And I thought, hang on, that's outrageous. I can cook. I'm going to go and cook for them mm. and make sure they eat their vegetables so they can continue to defend the university and stuff. It's a real inspiring I think thing about the way that the students can call out other people to support them yeah more than just white bread that's one of the cliches <laughs> of the student movement in Hong Kong I think Our comrades across the world. I was reading about Sudan I mean you don't necessarily think about I guess probably because people are racist but like you know African sub-Saharan African university students being on the forefront of struggles but um something i read about that what was happening there is that the government actually has completely closed universities 36 public universities have just been shut down um kind of until further notice because students have been um really the driving force of the uprising in sudan mm. which again shows the fact that these campuses as these organizing spaces and these students as this independent force and being able to kind of um, think of ways for the government to break that up. Or, you know, if you're resorting to shutting down public universities, it's obviously you're responding to a definite degree of power there. And then in Iraq as well in the last few days, there's been um, some footage of students organising again, kind of on a big sports field, this photo of students doing a solidarity protest with their... Um, fellow students who've been killed protesting in other places. And and then what's exciting and interesting about that is the kind of way that they're basically saying no to the sectarianism that has been obviously fostered by Western imperialism, US invasion and everything um, for a very long time. And so there, that consciousness to break through in with the students as well has been pretty inspiring. Yeah, it's interesting, the thing about shutting down universities, because... That was a factor in, in Hong Kong as well. The universities were um, shut down, but also in, in France, in the famous student movement of 1968, the shutting down of un universities was a factor there. 
even back to uh, the 1905 revolution in Russia, the, at a, a point, uh, one of the high points of struggle there, the universities were shut down to prevent their use as meeting places, mm. you know, places where you can give a speech to hundreds or thousands of people. And in all of those cases, there are different variations on figuring out how to try to turn those university spaces over to movements that can take in broader social layers and students and make them organising centres of mass movements or potentially even revolutionary movements. Yeah, and the thing you mentioned about the solid, the kind of solidarity actions, like so the um, protests in Iraq, the fact that they were in the north and in solidarity with the um, students that had been really brutally repressed uh, in the south, but also in Sudan, I was reading about some of the protests and the a lot of the student protests they helped continue um, the resistance after the repression and after the Khartoum massacre uh, in Sudan because the one of the people that was a more high profile death in that massacre was a student and that um, provoked student protests as well as another protest which was in solidarity with um, a protester in Egypt who had been uh, arrested and repressed and was being denied um, like access to a lawyer and stuff like that so that like the idea of fostering solidarity not just against sectarian lines but also kind of over nationalistic lines is really and also um Alaa Salah, who was the woman in that iconic picture of Sudan standing on top of a car, she's a university student and has been part of organising university students as well. So it's sort of, even if it's not obvious um, that students are everywhere in these struggles. Yeah. And Daniel, you um, mentioned um, Paris 1968. I mentioned it in the podcast with Fleur and I said 1969. And um, I know you might have heard me, but I do know Close that it was. <laughs> you might not have noticed, but you do know now. You can go back and listen. Um, but it was obviously 1968. And if you kind of asked anybody, like, what is the iconic moment where students really asserted themselves on on the stage of world politics? Then 1968, tearing up the cobblestones of the streets of Paris, building barricades, um, organizing on campuses, like occupying the Sorbonne, like all of that. Um, all of those actions kind of are the icon of student politics. So what was it about that period then? Or, what, you know, is the experience of students today very different from that or is it still the same kind of general features? Does somebody want to talk a bit about the the history or the spark for 1968? I think you do know about it. <laughs> well, there's a lot of sparks yeah. for 1968, aren't there? If you if you look into it, there was a, a student movement developing alongside a workers' movement actually over um, the years, like all of the 1960s leading up to it. There'd been uh, the the left of the student movement had organised uh, demonstrations against France's colonial war in Algeria, and a lot of them had been small, but they'd helped to cohere a kind of an anti-imperialist activist left on the university campuses, and that had been building. For years and years, there was the um, the fact that these universities had just been massively expanded, taking a lot of students from, you know, working class backgrounds, as it were, and herding them into institutions that, for all the promise that they were supposed to be debating the highest ideals, were actually mm. just training them to administer a very bureaucratic capitalist society. And that was a frustrating experience for students, um, this new generation of students. And there were the, the specifics of the bureaucracy. There was the, the regimentation of student life to the most sort of sadistic extremes to the point where one of the things, like before the big explosion, there was a, they had these sort of watchtowers that they would construct, have guards in to make sure that the male and female students didn't mingle. And one of the early student protests before the explosion was an occupation of the construction site of a guard tower to prevent the construction of this mm. kind of surveillance institution that was used to regiment even the most minuscule details of the student's our personal lives. So a number of things going into it. Alongside that, 
And I think this is significant because, and Rose, you, you, you mentioned that May 68 in France is seen as when students asserted themselves. At the time, it was also much, much the case, very much the case that it was seen on the left as when workers asserted themselves in a Western capitalist country because it, it led to the biggest general strike uh, in all of history. And that really upended a lot of people's expectations about what student movements could achieve. And in the years leading up to 1968, there'd also been a, a growing hostility between young workers, their bosses and the police. There'd been, you know, very, very bitter strikes, a lot of fighting with the police. And that had been sort of building up to a, a head of tension prior to 1968 as well. But there wasn't a natural... Um empathy with the students from workers at the beginning of 1968. I mean, that's the other thing with student struggle, I think, that isn't, ne you know, isn't necessarily the case that students go into battle and then they can immediately just sort of drag workers along with them and that's the way it will go. And if so, you can get students going, then you're going to spark a another general strike. Like the workers in Paris thought they're quite privileged, these students, they don't understand working class life necessarily. And so, it took actually much more of a conscious intervention um, and there were left-wing groups, socialist, well, Trotskyist groups actually in some places, particularly in the south in Nantes, I think, where, you know, you had to go and make the argument to workers and so students had to realise that they couldn't just um, act and then and workers would follow. I think that was a different dynamic as well. Yeah, I think that is a, uh, one of the differences between um, then and today. There was a, a big student left in France that uh, very consciously tried to build connections between the student movement and the workers' movement. And it wasn't always planned. So, for example, one of the famous incidents was after uh, some of the major repression of the students, there's a, a night-long street fight between students and the police that a lot of young workers joined in and were quite inspired by. And that, that's quite similar to some of the things I think we're witnessing today, which is oppressed people from different backgrounds just being cheered and inspired by looking at students fighting cops. You can see that in Hong Kong mm. where these young students are shooting cops with bows and arrows and, you know, receiving support from three quarters of the population. Well, you had a similar thing uh, in 1968, but then after that, you also had outreach from the student left to the uh, quite conservative trade union federation to pressure, compel them to call a solidarity demonstration. And that allowed for some mingling uh, against the wishes of the trade union officials, some mingling of the students and the workers' mm. movement that then helped generalise that spirit of rebelliousness out uh, into the workers' movement. And a couple of things we're missing today compared to them. One is, you know, a, a growing workers' movement that's striking and has a lot of young workers fighting cops. And it's not just missing here. That, that's a missing element in a lot of these movements around the world, a, a working-class movement that can develop alongside the student movement. So, okay, that's a disadvantage compared to France in the 60s. And also, I think, we're missing, uh, relative to the 1960s in France, an organised left uh, amongst students that has the weight uh, on the campuses to try and build those connections between a, a workers militant workers' movement and a left-wing student movement. On the other hand, though, I think, I mean, there's definitely a lot of limitations today and definitely in terms of the left and workers' organisations and all of that. But students now, I mean, this is just my sort of very amateur perspective on it, but, you know, more integrated with the working class, particularly in the West, but also I think in some of these places like Chile and um, more advanced capitalist countries that, like you can't just be a student and that's all you do. But I think in Paris 68, it was basically you were a student, you hung around in the dorms, you went and had endless coffees on the left bank, <laughs> you know, like the stereotype of the beer drinking, smoking student, just talking politics and doing that is very different to what it's like now to be a student. Like 
the amount of free time that you have and all of that and the fact that you are in a workplace probably. So dragging people into struggle from workplaces is definitely going to be um, a feature now I think that's much more natural than it was in that period. Yeah, I think one of the things as well though in like the late 60s and the 70s is even then there was a beginning to be an influx of um, students from more working class backgrounds as well. Like the higher education has gone through a real evolution alongside capitalism and the needs of capitalism and um, as there is the desire really all throughout Europe for a more um, educated working class, you saw a bunch of students being given the opportunity for the first time to go to um High, access higher education but still obviously knowing their um like working class roots and having connections to that and that's only ever increased like the uh percentage of students that are either going to well people that are at university or want to go to university also you're just kind of forced to now there's very little entry job entry level jobs that don't have that so those connections are just increasingly so like um there is this more natural thing I think we're all working like minimum wage, hospo sort of jobs and like people working workplaces that are just filled with either university students, high school students or kind of people in their early 20s. Yeah. Yeah, I think young workers and students are much less distinct social layers now, especially in a country like Australia where most, pretty, the majority of students I think would work, um, so are young workers. And likewise, among um, young workers more broadly, it's hardly unusual to have bit of TAFE, a few semesters of university, even a degree. That's not some unheard of thing amongst the working class anymore. So I think the, as to use the Marxist jargon, the objective uh, differences between students and workers are much less than they were 40, 50, 60 years ago. Uh, but the politics in society uh, isn't there to really bring these groups together and struggle at the moment. Mm. And I guess if we're going to use the Marxist terms, um, we talk about the working class a lot, obviously. And when we define the working class as Marxist, we talk about it as a class in relation to the means of production. So, you know, in relation to the way society organises the production of what society needs. And in capitalism, obviously, there's a profit motive to that. There's competition and so on. And that workers have the power that they have and the interest that they have in transforming society because of their relationship to the mode of production. But students don't have that same relationship as students. So, there is a question I think that some Marxists have and people might have listening to this about why we still think that students uh, can play this important role uh, for the left and of the left and why, you know, as a socialist organisation, we kind of spend a lot of time talking to students and, and um, trying to convince students of Marxist politics. I mean, something that you do every single day now. So why do we bother, <laughs> you know, with that? Um, I mean, it's kind of interesting because in so many ways it just gets answered by looking at the actual role that students are playing in struggle. Like um, just factually, um, all of these recent ways of struggle have either been kicked off by um, students or has been continued and has the role of students organising has played a real key role in like continuing the longevity of the struggles. Like in Hong Kong, I think the question then for us is why and trying to understand things about the nature of education um, and the kind of neoliberal role of it, the stuff I said before about um, that this is a place where you're taught and believed that you're supposed to go and interrogate society and have the big conversations about how society is organised and what role you play in it and how you want to make it a better place. But also some of the just more objective things, which is we have a bit more time on our hands. Like 
education um, is incredibly, uh, I guess, flexible for students. Like you never know what time you'll be taken up by classes semester to semester. So you're actually forced into a place where you do have a bunch more free time on your hands. We all skip classes mm. and lectures to go to Me protests. Me and have noticed that because we both teach university <laughs> students. And you all forgive us when of we course. do. Sometimes we organise them to leave. And sometimes we do, yeah. The best ones. Um, and so that's a whole part of it as well, which is it's not that like I don't think particularly um, students uh, can hold more like radical left-wing ideas than kind of uh, members of the working class, but we do have a lot more time to spend dedicated to investigating those ideas and to taking action and organising around that sort of stuff. Yeah, I think we've got, you've got to be pretty blunt as a socialist and say, well, students, as, as students, can't lead a socialist revolution. And in fact, if, if they're in a full-on fight against the government, against the state, against the ruling class, they can hold out for a long mm. time, but it's very hard for them to win decisive victories uh, on their own. But they can kickstart really important things. They can inspire people as, as we've gone over, and you can see that playing out now around the world. But what, what you need for a socialist revolution, you need, need a mass working class socialist revolutionary organisation that, that you, 1968 in France, you can see both sides of this. The students were actually able to talk effectively talk over the heads of the trade union officials and kickstart, help kickstart at least a general strike. But they weren't allowed to, do, they weren't able to develop that into an ongoing revolutionary movement amongst the working class because there wasn't a, a revolutionary workers organisation that was able to take up that challenge from there. So, okay, that's the downside of students. They, they're not capable of leading a socialist revolution or, or even a, a serious challenge to the state in that sense. But they can start things off. And also a lot of the properties that make it possible for them to start things off, for example, access to good meeting places, you know, the fact that they're concentrated in very large numbers, the flexibility of lifestyles. When things aren't kicking off, when you don't have a big social movement, those same things make it easier for them to be won over to radical ideas on a smaller scale mm. and become the core of a developing radical current, not a movement, but just a radical current. And I think that's a lot of what, if, you, if you're a socialist today, that's what you want to work on now is trying to develop that radical current in society mm. that can contribute to the development of revolutionary movement more broadly in the future. And unlike workers, I mean, for workers to be effective, especially at the point of production, you need all workers to act together. And so there's a, there's a struggle there to build kind of worker solidarity and power in the workplace and whatever, like a strike is not really effective if you can only get 10% of people to take part. But on a campus, if you can get 10% of students to take part in demonstrations or protests or sh shutting the thing down or an occupation, you know, how many students are there at RMIT? A lot. A lot. 60,000. 60, so yeah, 10% of those, if you had 6,000 students at RMIT kind of occupying Bowen Lane or whatever, you know, don't want to give you too many ideas but there's <laughs> plenty of executive buildings right there mm. building one um so you know you don't have to be everyone as a student whereas as workers you have to be uh, much more united in your workplace and so on so that's a, a, another uh, feature of student politics as well i think yeah and the, and the challenge that reality creates for a radical is that we in social alternative spend a lot of time trying to win students over to revolutionary socialist politics and convince them and educate them and so on. But when you need a student socialist to also have a good understanding that the force that's going to lead society out of capitalism is the working class. So even if you're a student socialist, you, you can't be a, a student, you can't have a student strategy of revolution. You need to be a student socialist, means to be an advocate for a working class revolutionary organisation. 
the way of the revolution and that what about australia then um do australian students fit into that same general picture of the world and sort of the general points we've made about students or is there is there an exception <laughs> because australian students are so i don't know whatever people think about them well, what do you think about great them? i think australian students are all right i think yeah. they're 120,000 people that went to the climate strike were pretty good. Yeah, not bad. Those ones are good. Yeah. yeah. I think it's can often be one of those things where we're like, oh, it's not May 68 or it's not Chile and we're not storming train stations or anything yet and be like, oh, okay, well, we're just like a irrelevant backwater and we have to kind of come up with this new idea or whatever. But even just, I mean, in the kind of five years that I've been a socialist on a campus organising um, with students, there's just and there's so many examples that point to the fact that we have this the same role, like the not just the recent environment um, movement, the school strike for climate, the role that university students have played in organising actions on our campus, helping bolstering bolstering the numbers of the bigger actions as well. But also, like in 2014, when I um, but yeah got involved in the campaign against Tony Abbott. The budget that they released, the like um, huge austerity budget, had a lot of things in it that uh, were right to oppose, and including like attacks on Medicare and stuff like that. And but there was this more general thing, and it was the intervention of a couple of students, well, a couple of students, a lot of students, um, and a few thousand students in protest sustained throughout um, a few months that made the topic of fee regulation the key question of the budget, the key question really of that entire government and cabinet and like actually effectively decided that they could not implement uh, huge attacks on higher education for years and years afterwards. Mm. And like it's obviously very small scale, but it really echoes the stuff that's happening, the fights that have been happening in Chile around free education, in South Africa around um, education as well. You know, we the stuff about Chile I think is important because – you know, we're talking now about the incredible role that they're playing, but we weren't talking really about the smaller protests that were happening years and years ago, but those were just as important in building and getting to points where actually you have what's happening now and understanding that in Australia right now, that's what we're doing. We're building these blocks to um, get towards actually bigger movements that will one day hopefully challenge like mm. um, a government. Yeah, I mean, the, the reality on, on the campuses in Australia now is not great, mm. I think you would have to say. I mean, the, the 150,000 people that, that came to the, stu- the school strike in Melbourne uh, a couple of months ago were not overwhelmingly university students. It was some people younger than that, quite a lot of people older than that. And more and more it's the case around Australia that the, the student unions that are meant to be the organising centres of, you know, student radicalism and so on, these days are, are more and more heavily run by the Liberal Party or the factions of the Labor Party, which are in practice quite hard to distinguish from mm. one another, except mm. when they go out door knocking uh, during an election. But in terms of how the student unions are run, it's not the case that you turn on the news every day and you see some radical action that the student unions uh, around Australia have organised or even some significant protests and the the campuses aren't a, hu- a thriving hub of radicalism uh, at the moment that that's the the current reality things might change though and i think things are changing right now in the minds of young people whether that flows through on the campuses immediately let's see but there's a couple of polls out recently that have in particular you look at it the top issues to in society broadly and then amongst young people climate change has just leapfrogged mm-hmm 
six or yeah. eight other issues and is up there like right in the front and center of young people's consciousness. And it is the case over the last year, I think any of us that have been doing any activism around university campuses have felt something shifted in the last 12 months in this country. Now, it hasn't shifted like Chile shifted. Mm. Uh, it hasn't shifted like Hong Kong shifted. And realistically, it hasn't shifted one-tenth of one percent as much as them. So I don't think it's, a, you know, any comparison between what's happening here and those countries would be misleading. But it is the case that students have those properties, those same properties that mean they can suddenly, they can just suddenly swing. You don't mm. see it coming. Like they can swing out of nowhere and suddenly they're embarking on large protests, campus occupations. There's a bunch happening in Britain now that you wouldn't have necessarily foreseen uh, a year ago, a little revival of student protests there, campus occupations and so on. Um, and that could happen here just as much as it could anywhere. Yeah, and you think about the people um, listening to this show in Australia, the, the vast proportion of this country that we're on right now that is choking in smoke from bushfires and even in the heart of Sydney, you know, in the last mm. few days people are wearing gas masks and like there's ash falling from the sky. Kind of the sense of urgency that particularly young people have to think I've got to live the rest of my life somehow in this situation. What are we going to do and how are we going to organise and to look at the people around them. And I think high schools as well could be potentially a site um, where people start to organise and, and think about what they want to do to kind of resist the system and resist the Liberal government in Australia that is so awful and condescending to young people and students and, you know, all of the things I think that have um, remained the same from 1968 to now include the fact that we're sold this expectation about what it means to be a graduate or a, or a postgraduate now probably but you know the sense that if you put the effort in if you do if you work hard you will get to this better situation in life where you can have a, a good job with good pay and feel secure about it and everyone now knows this this is just a lie and we know it as casual workers in higher mm -hmm. education as much as students know it you know like so that that sense of where is the future that this kind of society is supposed to deliver not just on the question of the climate, but on the question of what am I going to do with the rest of my life? How am I going to afford, you know, to ever buy a house or whatever it is that um, we think that should just be something that happens in society is not going to happen for young people in Australia. I think there's this general sense that people know about that, right? Yeah, definitely. It's been, I guess, one of the themes of a lot of the discussion about the climate actually has been like, what is the point in... Uh, going to school and doing my homework and stuff if I'm going to graduate and the planet's not even going to be habitable. Mm. Um, also, one of the things is like, what's the point in going to university and studying an environmental engineering degree mm. when uh, decisions that are made about may have a sustainable planet aren't made by, uh, you know, environmental scientists. They're like, I'm actually not, that's actually not something that'll make a difference so looking to other questions but so get involved in politics that, that's that's the topic um daniel and we'll finish on this you mentioned uh the fact that the student unions are pretty you didn't say the word but i'll say it moribund mm. uh, with the leadership of the liberal party and the labor party so we've got this national union of students conference mm. coming up there's a bunch of socialists going there to try to intervene to make student unions what they should be centers of politics of activism and so on um, now, what are there some plans that you have, or is it a secret plan, or what? What do we want NUS to be doing as the left next year? Well, the argument that as socialists and as like left wing people that we're taking into the student union, one that we take into all of their interactions we have with student unions, is uh, that student unions actually have a role in mobilising students into being active and 
taking up political questions and uh, it's clear the dominant question now or the most important question I think for us to intervene into around is the school strike and the school strike for climate. And so one of the key questions we'll be taking in is about organising um, university uh, actions and uh, getting involved with that. I think it's outrageous that uh, there's forces that run the student unions like the Liberal Party, well, like the Labor Party though, who actually um, dominate these spaces uh, have done nothing and like are totally complicit in it. Not surprisingly, uh, given like the positions of like the Labor Party leaders and the Labor Party kind mm. of opposition government. And so it's always a pitched battle uh, and at these conferences and in our interventions. But um, it's really important that we have as much space as we can and we force them or pressure them into actually taking this action because there's a real, uh, we re- like we can, like so a lot of the actions this year um, like in Melbourne in August 9, um, we held a position on a local level in the National Union of Students and used that to call um, the University Student Climate Walkout, which mobilised um, a couple of thousand students in Melbourne to really continue the wave of activism. So there's a real importance to doing yeah. doing it, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And you mentioned the Labor Party and I was thinking – Christopher Pine used to be good mates with um, Albo when they used to do that morning mm. show together. And I, I thought maybe he'd retired with Pine, but apparently he's leader of the Labor Party. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew? Anyway, if you're out there, Albo, um, do something good. Uh, so maybe we'll get you back to report on NUS if there's any progress um, in the I'll new year. I'll tell fun stories. I'm say hi sure me. there'll be some fun <laughs> stories. Say hi from all of us. Um, and let's hope we can see some movement on the campuses in australia next year thanks Nat. right on thanks daniel cool thanks thanks and this is red flag radio thanks for listening mm-hmm.